Welcome to In Conversation with Lyndon Terracini, the podcast where we meet the extraordinary talents, both on stage and off, working at Opera Australia. These conversations were all originally filmed for our streaming service, OATV. You can find more online at tv.opera.org.au, as well as full productions and behind-the-scenes footage. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to OATV. And my very special guest today, the Honourable Paul Fletcher. He's the Minister for Communications, Urban Infrastructure, Cities and the Arts. That's a huge portfolio, Minister. It is, Linton. Good to be with you and great to be here at uh, Opera Australia's facilities uh, in, um, in Surrey Hills. It's lovely to have you here. Now, um, just going back to your early life, you came mm. to Australia as a two-year-old. Mm -hmm. And uh, you went to school at Sydney Grammar and yep. Sydney University and then Columbia University. But what I found fascinating was that um, while you were at university, at Sydney University, you co-wrote a couple of plays. The yes, the, I, I did. The um, Facts of Life. Facts, facts of Life. <laughs> and uh, what was Annually it? Fixated. That's right. One. Yeah, so I was involved in law reviews with um, uh, Peter Duncan, who yeah, yeah. went on to be the uh, writer and director of, of Rake mm. uh, and a number of uh, feature films. And Craig Hassel, a former oh, really? um, former chief executive of Opera Australia, yeah, yeah. now at the Royal Albert Hall. That's right. So, um, yes, uh, they kept going in those particular career directions, and mm. I went on to be a lawyer. I went to more lectures than they did. <laughs> <laughs> well, in fairness, I went to more lectures than Peter. I think Craig went to lectures. Uh -huh. <laughs> but where, where did this inspiration? Was it from the family that was interested in literature and 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 so on, or? Um, Look, I mean, we, yes, we were a family that always had lots of books around and mm. my dad was a university professor and yeah. my mum a teacher, um, but it was just one of those things that you do uh, on campus. Mm. Um, I was also involved in a lot of university debating, so it mm -hmm. seemed like, you know, a, 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 a people are involved in debating are often involved in, in satirical reviews yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. so on. Yeah. So, look, w what we learned particularly from... Um, facts of Life. So that was the law review in I think 1988 or so. And then we found somebody who was a theatre producer and agreed to put it on. So mm -hmm. it ran at the Playhouse. Yeah, yeah. We raised the money. We lost all the money. <laughs> it was uh, extremely educational. I remember going in there one Saturday afternoon with Pete to see a matinee. There were four bemused Korean tourists. They'd obviously been sold their tickets as part of a package so they could say they'd been to the Opera House. Look, it was extremely educational. Mm. You know, sometimes your failures in life are the things that you learn the most from. Yeah. Um, and it, look, it obviously did not deter either Peter Duncan or Craig Hassel from going on to have um, very, very significant careers as either, in, in Pete's case, a, you know, a, a, a writer and director or in, in Craig's case is one of you know the most eminent arts administrators mm. and leaders that mm. our country's ever seen. Mm. But then later too, you wrote a book. Uh, I did. Wired Brown Land, I mm. think it was called. Or yeah, so that was a book about um, broadband. I'd been mm. working at Optus as a senior executive there for about mm. eight years, and um, I said, "Look, it's time to move on. I was going to have a bit of a sabbatical." Mm -hmm. So I had a bit of time to my hands for the first time in some years, and I thought. I want to get some of this off my chest. I want to write an article. Mm. And what happened was that after about six weeks, I'd got into this quite nice routine of sitting down at my desk and writing for a few hours a day, and I'd had 60,000 words written. <laughs> and so I then went to see a friend of mine who worked in publishing, and I said to her, look, I've 
I've written this. Um, would you mind having a look at it and telling mm. me if you think it's any good? And she came back a few weeks later and said, look, I've had a look at it. It needs a lot of work. But if you're interested in writing it and, and doing the work, we will publish it. Mm -hmm. So that was um, uh, a more favourable response than I'd expected. What I learnt was it's a huge amount of work mm. to go from a rough first draft yeah. to something that is, is published. In fact, I went through five drafts. But it was, mm. it was intellectually a very satisfying experience. Yeah. And I am, um, I am quite passionate about telecommunications and broadband yeah. and the way that it can improve people's lives. And particularly mm. in a country like ours, 7.7 .7 million square kilometres, yeah. so important. And I know in a lot of the work that you do that Opera Australia thinks carefully about our performances are seen by people in metropolitan Sydney and Melbourne, but how yeah. do we make them accessible yeah. to people across Australia and what's the role of technology? And mm. we've obviously seen you know, global companies like the Met mm. um, uh, broadcasting productions mm. and there's quite an audience for that. But, of course, I think we'd all like to see more Australian companies doing that and mm. uh, I know Opera Australia has done some work in that space and I think 2020 with the pandemic was the year where we saw a lot of innovation in that space. Yeah, 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 that's right. I mean, as you know, we tour, in fact, our... Our company upstairs that tours nationally. Yeah, we're going to 53 towns and cities. They're yeah. rehearsing at the moment, and uh, to 80,000 school kids every year. But it's um, it's I'm, I'm fascinated by this uh, talking about communications and the arts because, um, well, often we in the artistic community don't talk about that area that's um, foreign to us. But of course, it's an incredibly important part of um, the entire infrastructure now. So we're we're certainly looking at uh, various things to do. But um, I, I noticed too, recently you were talking about companies playing to uh, all Australians mm. and that's been our mantra for yeah. a number of years that uh, we play to as many people as we possibly can. And uh, that's been terrific and uh, people have had terrific feedback about it. But where do you see this? Uh, you, you touched on it then, the, 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 the connection between the arts and, uh, and I guess you're talking about digital technology and where that's going to take us. Look, I think it's incredibly important. Um, one of the things, you, you, you mentioned a speech I gave uh, two or three weeks ago mm. about arts policy entitled Why Do We Fund the Arts? Yeah. And I, I talked about a lot of the traditional rationales, which are very, very important, starting with the inherent importance of cultural and creative activity. It's a fundamental human instinct. And, mm. you know, we're fortunate to live on a continent where there's 65,000 years of tradition of dance and painting and mm. storytelling. Um, but one of the rationales that's more evident recently for funding the arts is that crossover between artistic activity and creative activity more broadly. Mm. Um, if you look at what the Australian Bureau of Statistics calls the cultural and creative sector, that's close to 700,000 people. Now that includes, um, you know, your singers and choristers mm. and uh, the orchestra and people in the backstage crew and so on. Um, they're in what the Australian Bureau of Statistics calls, I think, the performing and creative arts subsector. Mm -hmm. But then you've got uh, people who work in libraries and galleries and museums. But then you've got uh, fashion mm. or publishing mm. or uh, software. Mm. So there's a a series of industries that are drawing on creative skills and that's completely central to what happens in the arts mm. but it's central to many other industries as well and I think it's interesting to look at the career paths of people who have been trained at 
our publicly funded or subsidised cultural training institutions mm. like um, NIDA or like the Australian Film, Television mm. and Radio School, uh, many of them will end up in for-profit mm. industries. And the, um, the, the British government has done a fair bit of work on this. this. This crossover then with between the sort of traditional, you know, subsidised arts sector and so many sectors that are growing in modern knowledge economies. Mm. So few of us today and fewer of us every day make our living from physical work. Mm. It's from brain power, from creativity. Yeah. And so long-winded way of saying, I think one of the rationales for arts policy is the broader economic impact as more and more of the way that all of us make our living is through knowledge, work and creative work. Mm -hmm. I mentioned uh, at the top that you're also the Minister for Cities. Yeah. Um, do you see um, a number of regional towns, which are cities now, uh, being hubs for, for creative arts and cultural activity in the future? Look, very much so. One of the things that is interesting about the pandemic and the way we all responded, when several million of us moved to working and studying from mm. home overnight, and we found that actually to our surprise, perhaps, our collective surprise, first of all, um, we all have devices that support video conferencing, mm. uh, tablets or smartphones or laptops. The video conferencing software has got much better than it used to be. Blue Jeans and WebEx and Zoom are all familiar mm. with them. Um, but also that broadband connectivity now supports video conferencing. Yeah. Now, what that means, amongst other things, is that people who want to have a lifestyle of living in the Blue Mountains mm. or... Um, you know, living in uh, well, Ballarat or... A city like Orange that has... Indeed. ...fantastic infrastructure. A absolutely. Now. So that's now an option for you. Um, shorter commuting time, mm. probably you can buy a lot more house for your money, mm. but you can still be very engaged in whatever sector you're working in mm. and you might be there, you know, most of the week or the fortnight and you might have a day a week or a fortnight in, in Sydney mm. for meetings and so on. So I think there are definitely those possibilities. Um, and some people have been saying to me, well, um, because we now think that more people can work from home, does that mean we don't need as much infrastructure, we don't need to think about cities policy? My answer is, um, it doesn't really change the need to have a policy approach here and to have the Commonwealth Government involved, which mm. is what's unusual. Historically, um, the shaping of our largest cities has been left to state governments, but the Commonwealth does have a lot of policy levers in this, including particularly the money we put into major transport infrastructure, which obviously has a, has a city-shaping impact. So, look, we need to think about how we've all changed our behaviours last year and how much of that will be permanent. Some mm. of it will be. Uh, but we also then need to think about, um, I guess, uh, the role of regional cities. They've always, I think, attracted significant numbers of, of creatives. Mm. How, can we, uh, how can we build on that? Mm. I guess it's it's sort of um, well seemed to me that it's, it's developing the way Europe did. Yeah. The distances are greater, but a city like Milan, for example, yeah. which actually doesn't have a very large population, a you know, bit over a million or something mm. like that, but it's the kind of focal point for yeah. different uh, towns around the region where and people work from there. Yeah. But it's uh, of course you know our distances are greater. That's true. I mean the urban theorists definitely talk about this. The what's the effective size of a city? Mm. And um, do people who live in Ballarat or 
Bendigo or Geelong in many ways form part of the overall Melbourne, you know, cluster of economic activity mm. um, because, you know, you might, if you need to go to see a specialist, you're going to Melbourne. To see a show, you might well go into Melbourne. Your work might be divided between the city where you live and, the, and, and Melbourne as the nearest big city. And what's related to that is that, you know, we're at a point in Australia's growth where our two biggest cities are now five million plus or minus. Mm. And it's theorised that Melbourne will catch up with Sydney and, and mm. pass it. We'll wait and see whether that happens, but that's, that's the theory. But, you know, what that means is if you compare us to big urban areas in Europe or the US or indeed Asia, those urban areas are usually multipolar. You know, you think about the Bay Area, mm. um, San Francisco, Oakland, San Jose, it's yeah. seven and a half, eight million people, multiple um, what we would call CBDs within that overall complex. Mm. Now, the New South Wales government, um, the Greater Sydney Commission, has proposed that model for Sydney, the, 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 the three cities, mm. um, the Harbour City, the River City and the Park, Parkland City, and indeed Western Sydney Airport, which I'm working on in my capacity as Urban Infrastructure Minister, is a critical hub for that Parkland City. So I think we're getting to a scale with our biggest cities where some of those ways that traditionally European cities or US cities mm. and, and urban areas have operated, we haven't had to think about in the past, but but now we do. Mm. No, it's a fascinating mm. development. And yeah. as you say, COVID has changed everything. And for us too, where we, we built a very large audience from tourists. Yes. And, uh, and of course that's gone. Yes. But what we've noticed recently, uh, and certainly with Honda Opera on Sydney Harbour, is as we started to get into the season, uh, we started selling pretty much the way we were before the pandemic, um, but was without tourists. Mm. So we're, we're looking at that again now and thinking, well, maybe um, there's a, uh, a, a shift in people's thinking that they actually want to get out. Mm. If they really want to see the show, yep. they'll, they'll come. So it's, that's been an interesting development for us too, and, and, and certainly from interstate, but mm. you know, when um, spikes happen in other states, it makes it difficult. Um, I wanted to ask you too about um, working internationally um, and obviously a lot of uh, films are being made mm. in Australia now mm. and people are coming here to, to do that. Um, what sort of development do you see taking place with that in the future? If we talk about film for a moment in particular, Australia's had a strong film sector for many decades and mm. indeed the Gorton government um, established what became the, the film school and there was a major push and that's paid real dividends. Mm. As a cabinet, we took a decision that there was a big opportunity to attract global productions to Australia mm. because of the fact that we're seen to have managed the pandemic well. Yeah. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, I had the chance to do a set visit to Thor Love and Thunder, which is mm. filming here in Sydney at Fox Studios. Mm. And what's interesting is just the number of jobs it generates for people in the film, in the Australian film business. Uh, I similarly visited 13 Lives, which is filming on the Gold Coast, the Ron Howard movie about mm. the Thai cave rescue. And again, small number of people having come across from the US, a handful, yeah. and then very large numbers of Australians, skilled crew, actors. Mm. Um, so there, there is a significant opportunity for us, and indeed our, our $400 million of funding here steps out through to 2020. 26, 27, because we're trying mm. to establish a pipeline mm. where these major productions um, are booked in for a number of years in advance. That's fantastic. And uh, look, in the in the as as you know very well in the work you do, yours is a global business, mm. and 
Australian uh, singers uh, will spend parts, in, often much of their career overseas. Yeah. They're often wanting to bring in uh, global performers to, to, to headline particular yeah. operas. But it's also, in my observation, it's not just um, the big names uh, at the front of the stage, mm. but it, it characterises the whole sector. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, we're, we're feeling that we can see light at the end of the yeah. tunnel. And, uh, you know, we're selling very well at the moment. But um, how is it from, from your perspective and government's perspective? I mean, it's, Look, it's we, such a... Yeah, we, we've been very conscious over the last 12 months that the arts has been amongst the sectors most heavily affected. Mm. When the COVID shutdowns came in early March last year, um, you know, overnight, venues closed, performances yeah. cancelled, artists losing their gigs. Yeah. Um, and that had a... Uh, a, a, that, that lasted for many months and of course that's quite um, the psychological impact of that for performers and for yeah. people who are passionate about um, sharing their work with an audience yeah. uh, and that obviously includes um, you know lighting designers and, mm. and sound people and, and indeed um, you know ushers and front of house people yeah, yeah. as well it's everyone across Pe the people in the art sector are very passionate about what they do yeah. and to be to be prevented from taking your work to an audience is obviously very distressing. Mm. We were also very concerned about or alive to the economic importance mm. of the arts and its uh, impacts on other industries. So if you go to see a show, you'll often go to a bar, a restaurant or a cafe. Mm. You might well book a night at a hotel. Yeah. You might jump on a plane to go and see a big exhibition or a big uh, musical or, mm. or production interstate. So, you know, we've committed quite a lot of funding, um, a $250 million package announced in late June last year, and we topped that up with another $125 million for our RISE mm. fund. Uh, we also had some funding for what we called uh, systemically significant organisations because we didn't want to get to the end of this and find that we'd lost major parts yeah. of the ecosystem. Yeah. Now, my sense is, I think, similar to the one you've articulated, that the recovery has been perhaps quicker than some of us had feared. I know there was a lot of concern amongst people running companies like Opera Australia that even when you were allowed to sh have shows again, that audiences might be reluctant to come mm. back. Well, it's been a slow burn, yes. I would say. Uh, when we started in January, we yeah. only played at 50%. Yeah. And we had the feeling that um, people were worried or yes. reticent. Yes. Um, we're seeing it's much, much better now, yeah. which is why I said I think we can see light at the end of the tunnel, yeah. so we hope it continues. Yeah. No, look, it's been, it's been heartening to see the way that so many um, companies are coming back, mm. but I know it's been a really, really tough period. Yeah. And, and for, for Opera Australia in particular, you've had to make some tough decisions in yeah. terms of some assets and so on, mm. and in terms of people. Yeah, exactly. Um, and look, I've met with... Um, uh, constituents of mine who have been in the orchestra, for example, and mm. um, they've uh, unfortunately it's not been possible to continue their employment. Mm. Um, so that's given me a bit of an insight into, I guess, the personal yeah. challenges. Um, but uh, at the same time, obviously, the objective has been let's get the company through this and that's keep right. it a, an, an operating entity. Yeah, mm. it was a difficult time for everyone. Yeah. And, um, you know, hard decisions had to be made. Yes. But, um, yeah, we feel as though we're, we're coming through now. Mm. Minister, it's been wonderful talking to you today. 
Thank you very much for coming in, and uh, we'll see you, I'm sure, at performances in the future. Looking forward to it. I thoroughly enjoyed La Traviata, and looking forward to other productions. Good. Thanks very Thank much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to In Conversation with Lyndon Terracini. We hope you've enjoyed the chat and we'd love for you to subscribe to the podcast. That way, you'll get each new episode as they're released. We also hope to see you in the theatre in the not-too-distant future. And you can stay up to date with all we've got going on at opera.org.au.